Shalom, and I hope all is well. My name is Yitzchak Schiffman. Thanks for tuning into this podcast, and I hope you enjoy the Torah classes in it. Now, on to the episode. Bezat Hashem, today we're beginning Mesechet Sanhedrin, and we'll start with the Mishnah in Betamud Aleph. Our learning today, and to continue, should be as a refuah shleima for Yaakov ben Dina, a good friend. Bezat Hashem, our learning should be a zechut for him, and he should have a complete and total recovery Karov soon and speedily. The Mishnah that we begin with in Mesechet Sanhedrin on Betamud Aleph has two sections. Zat Hashem, the first section we'll learn about is the distinction between which types of cases require each of the three different levels of courts that we'll learn about in the Mishnah, which require a three-person Bet Beit Din, which require 23, and which perhaps require a 71, the Sanhedrin Agadol, which we'll speak about in a moment, to adjudicate. The second section we'll deal with is the sources for these types of Batei Dinim, these levels of courts, where we know them from in the Psukim, and at the end of the Mishnah, a related point to that. So just as means of introduction here to understand what this Mishnah is going to tell us, we know whenever there's any sort of a court case, there's distinctions, obviously. You have civil law and you have capital law. There's different sorts of court cases that could occur, and then we have Jewish courts that would deal with these. There are levels of Jewish courts, though. It's interesting, we're starting on Parashat Yitro. Actually, Yitro, the father-in-law of Moshe Rabbeinu, was the one who gave the advice to Moshe about creating different levels of courts in a similar sense, actually. But we're going to see in this Mishnah, there are three levels of courts that could adjudicate, that can deal with different types of cases or different types of claims, as we'll see in the Mishnah. There's the lowest level court, which is a three-person Beit Din. And you have three, three rabbis, three people who can judge certain court cases, which we'll get to. The second level is a 23-person Beit Din. And we'll see also, that already gets a little more serious. They could already judge capital cases. That's already a what's called Sanhedrin Tana. It's a, it's a lower-level Sanhedrin, but they could actually adjudicate scenarios that would include capital punishment, meaning be putting people to death. And then we have the highest level, which is the Sanhedrin Agadol. It's the great Sanhedrin, which was the 71-person Sanhedrin that existed in the Beit HaMikdash. That was the highest level. It was like the Supreme Court. And they would judge, as we'll see also, the higher level, the more significant court cases, which we'll get to in the Mishnah. Let's begin in the Mishnah. And the Mishnah tells us, Dine Mamonot Bishlosha, the cases of Mamonot, cases of monetary claims or monetary uh, scenarios, civil law, is done by a court of three. It means you can have the lowest level of court of three people. That's sufficient in order to judge uh, monetary cases. Continues the Mishnah, Gizelot v'chavalot b'shlosha. Cases of Gizelot. Now, Gizela is theft, but it's a specific kind of theft in the sense that it's overt, out in the open. Somebody strong arms another person and steals what they have. So in order to adjudicate that scenario, to resolve that, you can have three pe- a three-person Beit Din, as well as Chavalot. Chavalot is where you damage somebody physically. Physically you damage somebody. 
So the Mishnah says in these two scenarios of Gzelot and Chavalot, you can have a three-person court adjudicate that scenario. The Gemara is going to deal with the fact that it starts off saying Dine Mamonot in a general sense, and then it gives these two particular cases of Gzelot and Chavalot. We'll have to figure out if there's a general introduction, particular cases, or if these are three different scenarios. We'll see that in the Gemara. Continues the Mishnah. Nezek v'chatzi nezek, if it's scenarios that could include full payments, nezek, payments of damages, as well as chatzi nezek, as well as partial half damages. So there's different scenarios. This is discussed at length in Masechet Babakama, actually, where a person's animal damages another. So if it's a tam, for example, you would pay chatzi nezek, half damages. If it was a muad, perhaps you'll pay nezek shalem, complete damages. But in any of these cases, as well as tashlume kefel, the payment of double payment. And what is that? If someone steals from another, now we're talking about gneva. He steals surreptitiously in a hidden sort of fashion. So the halacha is when he's brought to court, he not only has to pay back the principal value of what he stole, but he also has to pay kefel, the double, a double portion of that. As well as the payments of four and five times. This is a special parsha in the Torah where it talks about if somebody steals particularly a sheep or an ox. In these two scenarios, if he would sell it or slaughter it, the halacha would be, he would also have to pay back, not only again, principal, but he'd have to pay back four or five times as well. All of these types of cases are judged with a court of three judges. Continues the Mishnah, if a man rapes a girl, or if he seduces a girl, we're talking about a a young girl who is a virgin, a bitula, and the Torah tells us there's a certain penalty leveled against the man who does this. Rashi says it's the penalty of 50 silver coins. That's what's going to happen in order to pay for the damages that he caused. Or if someone casts negative allegations against the woman that he just married, again, there's a certain penalty associated with such claims. He says that she was not a bitula like he expected. And it's important to understand in context, it used to be that there would be kiddushi in the first stage of marriage. They'd wait roughly 12 months, and then they would do nisu'in, the second stage of marriage, or consummation of the marriage. If he claims that in between those two time periods, she went and slept with someone else, and thus she's not a bitula, so he's leveling a pretty serious allegation against her, because she's already considered a married woman, and if it's true, she's chayab mita. So the halacha is, again, he has to pay a certain amount if he's making this up and it's not true, and how do you adjudicate these types of cases? Ones mefatem otzi shemra bishlosha diver Rabbi Meir. So Rabbi Meir says this would be again with a three-person court. But the Chachamim disagree here because they say Motzi Shemra, this last case of Motzi Shemra, where he levels these allegations against the woman that he just married, you need a court of 23 judges to deal with this. As we mentioned before, 23 judges generally dealt with scenarios that were capital that could include putting people to death. So why is that necessary? Because associated with this is is capital scenarios. Maybe she was Mizana. If she really did stray from under her husband, she would be put to death. So therefore, you need a court of 23. Three is not sufficient in this case. Continues the Mishnah, Makot, if there's a scenario that a person is being judged and he may be liable to Makot, for uh, lashes in court, bishlosha requires a court of three people. 
Mishum Rabbi Yishmael Amru Esrim Mishlosha. In the name of Rabbi Yishmael, it was said you need a court of twenty-three. Three is not sufficient, and we'll see in the Gemara exactly what this debate is. Let's continue. Now, there's a concept of intercalation. What is intercalation? So, inter, 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 intercalating, inter, calculating in the year. Now, what is what is the idea here? So, there's actually two points here. There's ibur hachodesh and there's ibur hashana. Ibur hachodesh means that we know in uh, reality. Sorry, we know in reality the months in Judaism, really a full cycle of the moon, which would be a full month, is really 29 and a half days, roughly, a little more, a little less, but it's 29 and a half days. Now you can't have a month that's 29 and a half days. A month has to be either 29 or has to be 30. So Beit Din, back in the day, was tasked with the job to decide which months were going to be 29 days, which months were going to be 30 days. Now, they would determine that based on different factors. In addition, when you talk about intercalating the year, this actually, uh, we're coming up now to Adar and Nisan, this comes up in regards to keeping seasons as they're meant to be. We know that the solar year, the, uh, the, that the year, the calendar that is driven by the sun is 365 days, Let's say roughly 365 days. The lunar year, however, is roughly 354 days with a discrepancy of 11 days. Based on that discrepancy, seasons can get out of whack for us, that's a big issue because Pesach, for example, is supposed to fall out in Chag Aviv. It's meant to be in the spring. But if there is such a discrepancy for long enough, it can cause Pesach to not fall out in the spring as it's meant to. So therefore, Beit Din was tasked in order to keep the, the seasons lining up with the dates of the Chagim, etc., as they're meant to be. They would add an extra month every couple of years, which was in the form of an extra Adar, which we actually have this year thus keeping the seasons and the Chagim in line as they're meant to. So now, how many judges were necessary to do both Ibur HaChodesh and Ibur HaShana? Says the Mishnah, Ibur HaChodesh B'Shlosha, Ibur HaShana B'Shlosha Div Rabbi Meir. Meir says both the task of intercalating the month or the year was able to be done with, uh, uh, Meir says, with a court of three. He says like this, you start with three. However, the discussion, the ensuing uh, conversations between the judges to argue, to determine how it should be done is with five. And they conclude the process with seven. If they finished off with three, it's still considered effective. We'll see in the Gemara exactly what this debate is based on as well. Continues the Mishnah. Smichat Zekenim is a unique scenario, which is as follows. If the Sanhedrin paskins that a certain behavior is acceptable to perform, and then a majority of the Jewish people engage in that behavior, and it turns out they were wrong, and they led the Jewish people astray, the Sanhedrin is required to bring a special korban called Par Ha'elem Davar Shel Tzibur. Now before bringing that korban, some of the Sanhedrin needed to do smicha. Now smicha here doesn't mean uh, rabbinical ordination. Smicha here means you would lean on the animal before it was sacrificed. It's part of the avodah. So how many of the Sanhedrin had to lean on it? Smichat zekenim, so the leaning on that animal by the zekenim, and tuv arifat egla, as well as decapitating the egla, the calf. Now what is that referring to? 
This is a different halacha altogether. Halacha is, if a body is found, a Jewish body is found between two cities, somewhere on the road, and we don't know how he was killed, we don't know who killed him. So there's a certain element of uh, responsibility that the courts have, and the Sanhedrin would come and measure which city is this dead body closest to. After measuring which city is this dead body closest to, there would be a procedure that occurred in that city that it was closest to because we would level the complaint or the issue against that city to some degree, and they would do a process that would uh, relinquish their responsibility. It would be a kapara of some sort. Now that measuring was also done by some of the Sanhedrin. So the Mishnah tells us again, leaning on that par ha'elem davar shel tzibur, as well as decapitating this calf, bishlosha was done with a court of three, with me, excuse me, with three judges of the Sanhedrin. Divrei Rabbi Shimon, these are the words of Rabbi Shimon. Continues the Mishnah. Yudah says, no, actually, you need five of the Sanhedrin to be involved in this behavior, in these two activities. Three is not sufficient. And moving on to a completely different area of halacha now. Chalitza. Ha-chalitza. Chalitza is a scenario where you have, uh, you have two uh, brothers. One brother, unfortunately, passes away without children. The other brother has a mitzvah to marry his brother's wife after his brother passed away. That's called yibum. If he chooses not to do yibum and marry her, so then he has the opportunity to do chalitza. Chalitza is to send her away. Vahami'unin. Now, mi'unin is refusal. Refusal is as follows. Minat Torah, based on Torah law, a father is given the uh, ability, the koach, to marry off his daughter who is a kitana, who's under bat mitzvah age. If the father is no longer on the scene, this doesn't happen today, obviously, but if the father is no longer on the scene, the Rabbanan gave that ability over to the girl's mother or brother, again, while she's a kitana. But in order to show that this is not a deoraita marriage, when, when the mother or brother marry off that girl, and it's merely rabbinic, they also gave that girl the ability of opt-out. Until she becomes a gdola, she has the ability to refuse. She could say, I don't want to be married to this guy and walk out. Now these two processes of chalitza and mi'un, bishlosha, they require a beitin of three people to be there when it happens. Now a completely un unrelated area of halacha, which is netaravai, which is the fruits that are produced on the fourth year of a tree's production, which need to be consumed in Yerushalayim, as well as Ma'aser Sheini. Ma'aser Sheini is in the first, second, fourth, and fifth year of the Shemitah cycle, the uh, Ma'aser, the tithe of Ma'aser Sheini was taken off, and those fruits were also eaten in Yerushalayim. Now generally, you could take those fruits, transfer it onto money, take the money to Yerushalayim, buy food there, and eat that in Yerushalayim. But in a scenario, where you don't know how much those fruits are worth, Rashi says they began to spoil. So you can't compare this to something in the market, and therefore its market value is unclear. So what has to happen now is, you need a court of three judges to assess its value, and then you could transfer that onto money and take that money and consume it in Yerushalayim. 
Similarly, if you consecrated something and now you want to redeem it from being part of Hektish, being owned by Beit HaMikdash, you need three judges in order to assess its value so that there's an appropriate uh, deconsecration. As well as Erachin. Erachin is generally if somebody pledges the value of a person. Movable Erachin, we'll have to see in the Gemara what this refers to. In order to fulfill it properly, it requires three people. We'll see in the Gemara what that refers to. Rabbi Yudah, Rabbi Yudah says, Rabbi Yudah argues and he says like this, both in the case of deconsecrating hektish or erachina metaltalin, in order to assess its value, one of the three judges has to be a kohen. Tanakama doesn't say that's necessary. Rabbi Yehuda says it is. Now, if, it talk, if you're talking about consecrated land that you want to deconsecrate, in order to assess its value, you need ten people. Nine of them could not be Kohenim, but one of them would have to be a Kohen. In order to assess its value, you need a Kohen involved in that as well. And similarly, if you're deconsecrating a person who was consecrated, you need ten people, one of them being a Kohen. We'll see in the Gemara exactly what this deconsecration is all about. Until now, in the Mishnah, we've discussed scenarios where a court of three is sufficient or necessary. Now we're moving on to the next level. When is a court of 23 necessary? And these are all cases of capital punishment, where a person might, or a person, or we'll see, maybe an animal, could be liable to be put to death. That's where you need a court of 23. Continues the Mishnah when it comes to capital cases, you need 23 person court. The Mishnah continues with illustrations. Haroveya, Roveya is if an animal had relations with a woman. So an animal had relations with a woman. Now the woman for sure will require a 23 person court to adjudicate her case because that's one of the things the Torah says if it's true, she's put to death. But in regards to the animal, the animal could also be put to death. So in order to deal with the animal, you also need a court case of, 20, of 23 judges. Vahanirva, and the same idea, but nirva is where a man sleeps with an animal. In such a scenario, again, the man and the animal require a court of 23 in order to adjudicate the case. Where do we find this idea? Because Shenemar, the Pasuk says, It says you should kill the woman and the animal. Meaning in a scenario, a woman sleeps with an animal. Right? Not encouraged, obviously. The halacha is that both the woman and the animal, it's a hekish, it compares the two, are put to death. They're the same. Just as she would require a 23-person court, the animal would as well in order to be put to death. The Omer, and furthermore, it says regarding a man who sleeps with an animal, it also compares him to the animal, that also just as he requires 23, the animal he slept with would also require a 23-person court in order to be put to Death. Similarly, continues the Mishnah, Shor Niskal, a shore, an ox that is to be put to death. If an ox kills a person, it's Chayav Mitah, it has to be stoned. So in order to determine if it's Chayav Mitah, Be'esri Mishlosha, there has to be a 23-person court that can determine that. Shana Emar, we find the Pasuk says, Ashor Yisakel, the ox is stoned, Vigamba alav yumat, and also its owners die. Rashi says, we know the owners don't die, actually. If my ox kills somebody, I'm not chayav mita. So these are extra words. What does it teach us? It compares the owner dying and the shore being stoned. Kimitat ba'alim, just as in general, if a person is to be put to death, you need a court of 23. Kach so too is the death of the ox. You need a court of 23 in order to put the ox to death. Similarly, it's not only if an ox kills somebody that you need a court of 23, but also other animals. Hazeev, if a 
wolf kills somebody, v'hari, a lion, v'hadov, a bear, v'hanomer, the uh, leopard, habardalus, now habardalus is unclear exactly what it is, I saw, Rashi just says chayahi, it's some sort of a wild animal, I saw there's different explanations given, uh, the art scroll footnote says it's a polecat, which I believe is a type of ferret or skunk, others say perhaps it's a type of bobcat, uh, either way, a wild animal of some sort, v'anachash, or a, sna- a snake, all of these things, if they kill a person, mitatan their death would be administered by a court that judges them of 23. Anybody that kills them first has been merited. Now we'll see exactly in the Gemara what Rabbi Yezer is arguing about. Rabbi Akiva Omer mitatan their death is with 23. We'll see how Rabbi Akiva is arguing on the first opinion in the Gemara. Be'ezrat Hashem will see that as well. Now we're moving up to the final level. So, so far we discussed the courts of three, what they adjudicate, the courts of 23, what they adjudicate. Now we're moving up to a court of 71, which is the Sanhedrin Agadol, that sat in Yerushalayim in the Beit HaMikdash, and they judged the following. Let's continue. You're not allowed to judge a shevet. A shevet means if the majority of a shevet, Rashi says, served avodah zarah b'mezid. They worshipped idols intentionally. Nor can you judge navi sheker, a uh, false prophet, who prophesizes in the name of Hashem, but he's false. Veloet kohen gadol, or if a kohen gadol commits something that would incur capital punishment, you can't judge any of these scenarios. LLP beitin shel shivim veechad, only with the court of seventy-one in beitin Yerushalayim in the Beit Hamikdash, as we mentioned. So these are more serious, obviously, requiring the highest level court, the supreme court in Judaism. You're not allowed to go out to a voluntary war. Rashi says a voluntary war is any battle the Jews would wage besides for the wars in the days of Yoshua when they conquered Eretz Yisrael, right? when Yeshua crossed over with the Jews, conquering the land of Israel. So you can't uh, go out to a voluntary war, unless this was by the word of the 71-person court, the Sanhedrin Agado. Now, the area of Yerushalayim, and particularly the area of the Beit HaMikdash, had high-level sanctity. If they wanted to add on to the city, they wanted to expand its borders, or as we'll see the Azarot, the courtyards, in the Beit HaMikdash, they needed the 71-person court to engage in this, because that's in, essentially increasing Kedushah, which is a significant thing. You cannot add on to Yerushalayim, or expand the borders of the Azarot, the courtyards of Beit HaMikdash, again, without the word of the 71-person court. Now, you're not allowed to make a 23-person court for tribes throughout Israel. It means if you wanted to set up specific courts to deal with capital punishment in other shvatim, you're only allowed to set up that court with the word of the 71-person Sanhedrin. There is a halacha, as we're about to see, called irani dachat. Irani dachat, where are the inhabitants of a city, the majority of them worship Davodah Zarah, and we deal with it in a very strict way, we destroy the city. So the Mishnah says, Ein osin, we do not do irani dachat, this case of irani dachat, el alpi beitin shel shivim ve'echad, we only adjudicate it with the court of 71. Now on this note that we introduced irani dachat, we have a couple of related halachot of irani dachat. Ein osin irani dachat bisfar, we are not allowed to make a city 
into Irni Dachar and destroy it if it's a border city of Eretz Yisrael. Seemingly, the logic here is, because if you would, it would create a, a weakness in Eretz Yisrael against its enemies now that a border city is destroyed and is fallible to being attacked by enemies. Nor are you allowed to make three cities, we'll see in the Gemara if it means in a row, but three cities into Irani Dachat, but you could paskin that one or two cities are Irani Dachat and they have to be destroyed. Now, moving on to the second section of the Mishnah, the Mishnah now continues to tell us actually the idea of this, these different levels of courts and the sources for these courts. So the Mishnah tells us, Sanhedrin Dola Haitashal the highest level court was of 71, as we mentioned, which we call Sanhedrin, the colloquial. Viktana, the lower level Sanhedrin, meaning the Sanhedrin that could still deal with capital cases but wasn't three, Shal Esrim Vishalosh was 23. How do we know that the great Sanhedrin in Yerushalayim in the Beit HaMikdash was 71? So the Gemara tells us it's based on a Pasuk. The Pasuk says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells Moshe when he needs help dealing with the Jewish people, gather for me 70 elders from the elders of Israel. Now we know he gathered 70 people. And he was on top of them, Moshe. So you have 70 plus Moshe is 71. So you see the court that was assembled originally, it's in the Sefer Bamidbar, when it talks about Moshe requiring assistance, that was of 71. So you see, that's the ultimate court of the Sanhedrin. Rabbi Yudha says, he argues, he says Shiv'im. No. The Sanhedrin Agadol was 70 because really Moshe is not included in the count of Sanhedrin Agadol, and therefore it's 70 as is illustrated in the Psukim. We'll discuss this in the Gemara. Continues the Mishnah. How do we know that the lower level Sanhedrin of 23? How do we know that it's 23 people? As the Pasuk says, It says when it talks about capital punishment, it says, firstly, it says, the shaftu the congregation, keyword being Eida, shall judge, which is in the negative sense, convict. And it also says, they shall save, they shall acquit. So it refers to a group of Eida convicting and a group of Eida that's acquitting, that's saying he's innocent. We know, as we'll see in a moment, Eida means 10 people. So from the Psukim, it would imply. Eda shofetet ve'eda matzelet. That a group called Eda can can uh, can judge, can convict, and also another group is necessary in order to save. So it's ten plus ten because Eda means ten. Harei kanesrim. The psukim are implying that this lower level Sanhedrin is twenty. Now hold your thought about twenty three. We'll get there in a minute. Before we get there, the Gemara says, How do we know the word Eidah refers to ten people, as we've been illustrating? It says by the Meraglim, We know when the spies went off to Israel to spy out the land, they had nefarious intention. They came back and they said a very negative report, about Eretz Yisrael, besides for two. Besides for two out of the twelve, Yeshua and Kalev refrained from doing that. So the Pasuk says, Hashem says, Until when will there be this negative Eidah, this negative group, this negative congregation? But we know not included in the twelve of negative because Kalev and Yeshua didn't say negative things. They weren't included. So you see ten people said negative things and they're called Eidah. Therefore, you see Eidah is 10. So if it says Eidah in terms of convicting and acquitting, you see that there's 20. Continues the Mishnah. How do you know to include another three? Meaning, 
you have told me then, based on what we just said, that there are 20. How do you know that there's another three that are also included? Because the Pasuk says, by implication of the verse that says, It says, you shall not follow the majority to convict. Lerot means to do bad, but it means you don't follow a majority in terms of convicting a person. So Shomani, based on that, I would deduce, that you could follow a majority of the judges if it comes to acquitting, to doing good to a person. So if it's already implied by that, says the Mishnah, if so, why does the Pasuk after Meforash clearly say you shall follow a majority to do good, to tilt in the, in the side of favor? Why does it have to say that if we know already based on implication that in the side of favor, you do tilt for, for the majority? So the Gemara answer is actually based on the implication there's a distinction when you tilt in the side of favor or if you're tilting or if you're poskening in the side of negativity, of convicting. What is the difference? That the idea of tilting in the side of favor to acquit somebody, to say someone's innocent, is not the same as acquit as convicting somebody in the negative sense. What does it mean? In order to say somebody's innocent and he's off scot-free, you just need a majority of one judge saying that he's innocent over those who say he's guilty. But when it comes to making somebody convicted in the negative sense, so then it's a different sort of a system of tilting. In order to convict him, the imbalance has to be two people. That's what the Psukim are telling us. Which means now, turning to Bet and with Bet, now we've shown that you need at least two more people because what we're essentially saying is now you need another two in order to create this reality uh, that there's 22 people essentially that there's now the ability to have at least two. So now we're up to 72 judges on the Sanhedrin Agadol. But the Mishnah continues, Now, you can't have a court that is equal, as Rashi explains, because if a court was equal, then you couldn't have a scenario where based on one judge, you would be able to tilt in the side of favor because it would be possible then if it's 72 that you would have a perfect split making it that you can't tilt in the side of favor. So therefore you have to add on one more so thus we conclude that you have to have a total of 23 in the sense means originally we started off with 20 based on a daida based on the fact that you need another two in order to tilt in the side of negativity so we added another two. In order to make it that it's not equal, because then you can't tilt in the side of, um, you can't tilt in the side of positivity. Oh, with just one, it has to be an odd number. Therefore, you need a total of 23. Logically, you add one more person, concluding that the lower Sanhedrin has to be comprised of 23 people. The Kama concludes the Mishnah, and this is really a unrelated uh, but Separate point. How many people have to be in a city in order to make it fitting to have a Sanhedrin? Meaning, you can't just establish a court of 23 in any city. You have to have a certain number qualifying that city as sufficient enough to have a 23-person court. So the Gemara says, There has to be a total of 120 people in that city. Now, that's not so many people, obviously, but that would make it fitting, Ra'oi, qualified to have a court of, 20, of 23 people established there. 
Rabbi Nechemia Omer, Rabbi Nechemia says you need more. He says, Matayim v'shloshim, you need 230 keneged sarea sarot. Now, why does he say that? He says because it has to parallel sarea sarot. Rashi quotes actually in Yitro, the way we learned in Parashat Yitro, where it talks about courts of 10 people, is that the lowest possible position of judges is if you have one judge adjudicating or presiding over at least 10 people. So therefore, in order to establish a court of 23, there has to be that each one of those 23 can theoretically reside over over 10 people, resulting in that city needing to have 230 people to establish a Sanhedrin of 23 in that city, in that town. Okay, we're going to stop here at the Gemara. We did Betamud Aleph today, Bezrat Hashem. We're stopping here towards the top of Betamud Bet. Bezrat Hashem will pick up tomorrow with Betamud Bet and continue to discuss the Reshav, this Mishnah, the distinction between, like we said, Mamonot, Zelot, and Chavalot. With this, we'll stop. Everyone have a wonderful day. All the best.